Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. I'm your host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. You can see our website at stmatthewbt.org. We're coming to you live on this St. Joseph's Day, March 19th, a tradition that we uh, are choosing to observe even in the Lutheran Church. And in fact, that leads into our topic for today, which is traditions, traditions. What do we think about traditions? You can weigh in on this topic. Uh, our phone number, our toll-free number all across America is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And our local number here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. You can also email us your comments or questions at this email address, kfuo at kfuo.org. Well, in the studio here with me today, we've got Ian running, running the soundboard. Thank you, Ian. And our guests in the, in the studio here with me are voices you've heard on these airwaves before. Uh, first, the Reverend Dr. Professor Thomas Egger, professor, associate professor, I guess still, right? Even though you've, you've got this new title in front of your name. Uh, of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Welcome, Tom. Good to be here, Charlie. So you finally finished that dissertation. That's huh? right. That's right. How many years did it take? Well, off and on, more than a few. Well, you've got yeah, like fourteen yeah. kids, so uh, that's right. <laughs> ask him how many pages. How many pages? Also, more than a few. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was. Uh, like, you wouldn't want to drop it on your toe. <laughs> it was about the visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Right. 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 Yeah. Good. But as I said, I think you could handle something in systematic theology and the doctrine. You had to read the Book of Concord, right? I've heard of it. Okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. I'm a, a Lutheran pastor, so I have yes. sworn before God to right. preach and, and I teach know as according an exegete, to this book. You know how to read and interpret texts, too, in their context. So we're glad to have you on the program here today. What are you are you uh, in sort of a spring break right at this week? Or Yeah, we have reading week at the seminary, which uh, still worked. Work to be done, but no classes. So. Okay, what is what is reading week? At midway through the semester. You read all the papers that have piled up? Uh, it is, I'm not sure how it got that name. I think the idea was students would catch up on large reading assignments yeah. or larger projects like papers. Do you papers. have to read their papers and grade things? Uh, some semesters I do. This semester I don't have, currently have a stack of papers on okay. my desk, which is very nice. I hear you. What, <laughs> what uh, courses are you teaching this term? I uh, am teaching a grad seminar in the book of Exodus. Cool. And I'm teaching a demon course called Exegetical Theology Today, where we're actually looking over the shoulder of Reed Lessing in his Isaiah commentary okay. for half the course, and over the shoulder of Jeff Gibbs through the third volume of his Matthew commentary Good. for half the course. 
And, uh, and then I have a couple of independent studies that I'm working with individual students, one in Job and one in Exodus. Very good, very good. And then another uh, familiar, very familiar voice, uh, one of my most regular guests, is Pastor Warren Worth. Welcome back, Warren. Good to be with you again. Yeah, you've been on many of these. Uh, we're coming near the end of the, uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I mean, we've been at this, I don't know, a year or two uh, <laughs> over all the weeks, and you've been on here for many of them. My pleasure. Good. And you are the pastor at? Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Do you have a website? We do. It's goodshepherdarnold.org. Good. And what's new in the zoo there? What's new in the zoo? Well, we're in the middle of Lent. And so we have our worship services on Wednesday evenings at 7, as well as Sunday morning at 9. Sunday school and Bible class are at 1030. So if you're in the Arnold area, we invite you to join us. Good. Very good. And uh, on my Sundays off, that's sometimes where I go, too, because I know I always get a good service and a good sermon. And you preached for me when I was sick, <laughs> too, so we appreciate that. Very good. Forth. Well, we are in, listeners, we are in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which, as we've said many times, is not saying we're sorry for writing the Augsburg Confession, quite the opposite. It is a spirited and very thorough defense of the Augsburg Confession of 1530, which the Roman Catholic theologians then uh, wrote a confutation against, and now in the Apology, Melanchthon takes up his pen to defend what we Lutherans uh, believe, teach, and confess in the Augsburg Confession. So the final article in the Apology is Article 28 uh, on church authority, and that had been uh, discussed at the end of the Augsburg Confession. So a little bit of background on that. Tom, what was the issue in the Augsburg Confession on uh, church authority? What were the Lutherans saying there over against why they made some changes or what they objected to? Right. Well, the, the, the closing articles of the Augsburg Confession have to do with church abuses, different mm -hmm. church practices that the Reformers were critiquing. And they were critiquing them especially always through the lens of the gospel. They thought that different practices... Um, for one thing, had had little or no grounding in Scripture, uh, but but even more importantly to them, that they obscured the glory of Christ in salvation, that they robbed sinners of the full comfort of the gospel, that they put something else in place of Christ um, in terms of earning salvation. And so uh, at the close, then, of that list of, of abuses uh, in the church that they were critiquing, they take on this issue of authority in the church. And to some extent, that is uh, that was a topic or an issue that had been played as the trump card for all of these things, uh, that, uh, that the medieval Catholic church, um, when asked to defend these practices from Scripture, could simply retreat to saying, well, the bishops have said so. And the Pope has said so. And the so. Pope has said so. You know, and I remember... Uh, uh, I wasn't there, but in 1519, at the uh, was at the uh, Leipzig debate. This is where Eck challenged Luther, saying, "You're a Hussite," and uh, Luther had to say, "Well, sometimes popes and councils got it wrong, and I'm going to go by Scripture." Yeah, and and uh, I think more so in the Augsburg Confession than here at the end of the Apology, they they the reformers also critique the claim of the church to temporal authority and even the authority of the sword. Yeah. And, uh, Confusing the two kingdoms, church and yeah, state. Yeah, that they would violently enforce uh, 
some of these practices and the acceptance of some of these practices, even those that were contrary to the gospel. And so, uh, Pastor Worth, then what in the, in the uh, Augsburg Confession itself, what do they say is the proper role or authority or power of bishops? Well, particularly it's to preach the Word of God and to administer the sacraments according to Christ's institution, to uh, forgive and retain sins. That's really uh, what it's all about, the office of the keys, and that's what bishops should be about, which is then being concerned for the salvation of souls and not for just uh, temporal power. And when bishops might have some civil authority, that is not inherent to the office. For example, when we conduct a marriage, a wedding, you know, the state has sort of delegated that for ease and convenience so that pastors can regulate that, can, can officiate at those things too. So it's not by divine right, it's simply by human arrangement that we might have some temporal authority as well. Uh, let me just, before we move into the apology, I just want to read a couple excerpts from the Augsburg Confession itself in Article 28 to see what the Roman Confutation was reacting against and what Melanchthon is defending. So in the uh, Augsburg Confession itself in Article 28, I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, paragraphs 21 through 23, kind of picking up on what Pastor Worth just said about bishops. Uh, they have been given the ministry of the word and sacraments. They have no other authority, according to the gospel, than the authority to forgive sins, to judge doctrine, to reject doctrines contrary to the gospel, and to exclude from the communion of the church wicked people whose wickedness is known. They cannot exclude people with human force, but simply by the word. According to this gospel authority, as a matter of necessity, by divine right, congregations must obey them. But when they teach or establish anything against the gospel, then the congregations are forbidden by God's command to obey them. And Professor Egger was just saying about how when uh, the bishops would teach something that actually goes against the gospel, then we have to say no, um, when otherwise we might, if it's an indifferent matter, go along with it. And then uh, going back to uh, Article 28 in the AC again, uh, this picks up on where we're going to go today on the matter of traditions. Uh, in uh, paragraphs 55 and 56 from the uh, Augustana, it is proper that the churches keep such ordinances, um, traditions, customs, for the sake of love and tranquility, to avoid giving offense to another, so that all things be done in the churches in order and without confusion. It is proper to keep such ordinances not, uh, just so long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary to salvation or to regard it as sin if they are changed without offending others. And so, Tom, how is that sort of a balanced view here? Yeah, well, uh, it acknowledges that there are all kinds of things about the life of the church that are devised by men. Um, Many things about our life together, the way that we go about uh, our worship, the way that we go about the life of the church, are arranged uh, by human wisdom and human custom. And many of those things can even be in service to the gospel. Uh, they can be useful. They are good for order and tranquility in the church. I would, I would even say they're good for piety uh, in many ways. But... We can never say that something that hasn't been commanded and established by God is necessary for salvation. In fact, the, the essence of the gospel is that one thing 
is necessary for salvation, the saving work of Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, given freely in the sacraments, that that, uh, that, that work of Jesus Christ to save sinners needs to remain central in the church, and that sometimes human uh, humanly devised practices can impede that, you know, mm-hmm. can stand in the way or obscure that, and even uh, compete against that. But if other practices, customs, traditions extol the one thing needful, that can be helpful. Absolutely. Very good. Uh, then to now let's work our way then into the apology, the corresponding article in the apology. And uh, the uh, team last week ended up at paragraph eight. I just want to read an excerpt from that uh, that will lead us into today's reading. Paragraph eight from uh, Apology, Article 28. The bishops have no right to enact traditions in addition to the gospel so that people must merit the forgiveness of sins or that they think they, they are or that they think are services that God approves as righteousness. They must not burden consciences as though it were a sin to leave such observances undone. So that's leading us now into our new material. And I'm going to begin with reading paragraphs 9 and 10. We're in the reader's edition, uh, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. I'm on page 249 in my edition here. Um, And so we're picking it up, Article 28, paragraphs 9 and 10. The adversaries, that would be the Roman Catholic theologians who wrote the confutation, the adversaries also condemned Article 15 of the Augsburg Confession, in which we stated that traditions do not merit the forgiveness of sins. They here say that traditions lead to eternal life. Do they merit the forgiveness of sins? Are they services that God approves as righteousness? Do they enliven hearts? Writing to the Colossians, Paul says that traditions do not help with respect to eternal righteousness and eternal life, because food, drink, clothing, and the like are things that perish through use. Eternal life is worked in the heart by eternal things, that is, by God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let the adversaries explain how traditions lead to eternal life. And so uh, the the Roman theologians were saying that these traditions you have to keep because they'll lead you to uh, eternal life with God. And here Melanchthon cites Colossians 2. And Pastor Worth, I'm going to read this and ask you to react to it. in Because he, he's quoting here from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 2, starting at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that's the quote from Colossians 2, Pastor Worth. Um, so by what Paul is saying here, how is it that these imposed traditions that the Roman bishops were laying on people, how is it that they do not lead to eternal life? Well, they do not lead to eternal life if they're not really dealing with 
true repentance on the one hand and faith in Jesus and the merits of Christ as Dr. Egger was pointing out before. Because salvation and eternal life come only as gift by God's grace through uh, the uh, completed work of our Savior Jesus Christ who died for us and rose again. That's how salvation uh, is actually obtained by us. You know, Christ earned it. The word and sacraments distribute it. God works through them faith in our hearts so that we receive it. And when you're talking about mere outward things, whether it's fasting, uh, giving something up for Lent, as an example, uh, or uh, becoming a monk, or, or think a, of Luther's a nun or experience. You know, he was the monk of monks. Uh, he tried really hard, but this part about that these are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And we certainly saw that in the case of monasticism. So while you can make a rule that people take vows and become celibate and, and so forth, uh, they were struggling with their human nature, their biological human nature. And Luther and Melanchthon and the Reformers talked about how much filth there was uh, behind the closed doors in convents and monasteries because people were not able to keep those vows. And so it didn't really work to uh, have people live a holier life than everybody else. And their idea of living that holier life then would earn you heaven or a better place in heaven or even earn you benefits that could be distributed to other poor people like us who don't do enough the good super work. saints. Right. So they'd be super saints who, who could give us some of their merit. Uh, and what the reformers are pointing out is that's a totally wrong idea. Then we I, still have this old Adam, this old sinful flesh, and just trying to... Um uh, put rules to cap it, you're not going to actually uproot it. Unfortunately, yeah, the law is not able to, to make us holy. You know, the law shows us our sin and our need for our Savior Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us and also took the penalty that, that we deserve because of our breaking the law when he suffered, died, and rose again. That's how we then have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life that comes as gift by God's grace, through faith in Christ. Now, Professor Egger, I know that uh, in the in the Gospels, uh, Jesus takes on the traditions of the particularly Pharisaic Judaism that had developed kind of as, they thought it was sort of a, a hedge around God's commands, so you couldn't even get close to violating them. And they had these man-made traditions, like you have to wash your hands a certain way from coming in the marketplace. What did Jesus say about those things? Yeah, it's, that's interesting that he asked that question. I just read that passage from Mark with my children last night in our living room, uh, going through the Concordia Publishing House Lenten devotional booklet, Behold the Man, last night oh. uh, for this Lent. And uh, By the way, I'm preaching that series this Lent. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a nice little devotional booklet. But, uh, but the reading last night was from Mark, and Mark 7, I believe. And uh, there Jesus is... is uh, He's been criticized. He and his disciples have been criticized for not properly washing before they eat and not keeping some of the other customary uh, laws of purity and, and cleanness. And uh, his point is, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the heart uh, that defiles us. And that ultimately, um, these customs have their place and they have their value in pointing us to our sin, pointing us to our need for God's mercy, um, but that ultimately, um, ultimately, uh, none of these customs can cleanse the heart. The mm -hmm. heart is, is hopelessly, hopelessly wicked. And so 
um, you know, the only way to the only way to to get at the issue is to remove the heart, right, or kill the heart, and that's not a that's not a spiritual discipline prescribed by anyone. Uh, you have to kill the old Adam. You just can't reform him. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and he also points out Jesus does that these traditions taught by men, though well-meaning uh, in the beginning and in their intention, actually serve to obscure. Even the law, not only the gospel, yeah. but they they obscured even the true commandments of God. He uses the example of uh, the commandment, honor your father and your mother. And yet different religious practices of his day led to people uh, making spiritual religious use of their possessions and their lives and neglecting their own parents in yeah. the process. Yeah. Uh, and he said, you, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God to fulfill the commands of men. The traditions of men. Yeah, yeah. the traditions of men. Yeah. And now you brought up fasting, uh, Pastor Worth, and during the season of Lent, uh, everybody thinks about that and uh, or not eating meat on Fridays. And um, Would Lutherans be in favor or against fasting during Lent or giving things up for Lent? It depends, right? So, so well, that's why I'm asking the question. Okay. I want to hear both sides of the question. So both sides of the coin. So if your idea is you're doing this as something necessary to salvation or something that will earn uh, a favor with God, that sort of thing, then it would be better not to do them because you're having humanly devised uh, works be something that you think are, will please God and earn favor with God as opposed to trusting solely in the merit of Christ and his work for you. That would be a bad thing. But rightly understood, fasting and other bodily preparations are indeed a fine outward training. You are quoting uh, Luther's <laughs> small catechism on the sacrament of the altar about how to come to the sacrament. Exactly. So for the Roman Catholic, it wasn't only during Lent that one would fast. In fact, even when I was growing up as a kid, every Friday, uh, Roman Catholics would not eat meat. And so while I attended public school, the public school lunch program every Friday was meatless. We mm -hmm. had fish sticks or macaroni and cheese, which I happen to like, so that was no big <laughs> sacrifice for me. Just like I love seafood. So what a sacrifice it is to, to, have, to, give, to have to give up my hamburger so I can eat shrimp uh, or <laughs> lobster <laughs> or scallops on, on Friday. You know, again, these, these humanly devised things are foolish and dangerous, dangerous in that if you think you're going to earn your way to heaven by doing them, you're you're going away from Christ, away from the only thing that really saves, which is God's grace through faith in Jesus. But but rightly understood, the, our Lutheran fathers talked about the fact that fasting can be done to discipline the body, mm -hmm. and if you're not doing it to earn brownie points with God or to show off, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns against fasting to show off and be seen by men. So. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving are in themselves good things if they're done with a heart that's right toward God, trusting in God and disciplining the flesh so that one may focus all the more on God's grace in Christ. Then it's a good thing, but one has to be careful. The attitude of the heart makes a big difference in this, does it not? Yeah, and sometimes these customs or traditions like not eating meat on Fridays have totally lost any spiritual connection at all. You're not even thinking that you're earning points with God, but just because, well, we're Catholic and so we, we, we have fish fries and it's a fundraiser for our church and it's a nice custom and it, get, it has gotten totally detached from any 
spiritual connection whatsoever. Which is probably better than, probably better. than uh, assuming that you're actually fasting, grace. becoming yeah. a trending, a trendy thing simply for, oh, I got to lose some weight, so I'm going to do intermittent fasting. Well, that may be fine, but don't think it has any spiritual meaning. Okay, well, we're coming up on the break here. Um, we're talking about uh, traditions within the church and what is the authority that the church has in regard to them. You're listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be back in a minute. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. In a day when numerous concerns about money and safety abound in this fallen world, there is still a beacon of hope in Christ Jesus spreading the gospel message of mercy. Worldwide, KFUO has been a good steward of donations, ensuring the safety of funds our listener-supported ministry receives. If you have questions about donating to keep this worldwide ministry healthy, send an email to gifts at kfuo.org. When Jesus meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he promises her living water. What is that living water? Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We'll also continue our series responding to Calvinist proof texts with Pastor Jordan Cooper. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. As an explorer and missionary, Dr. David Livingston discovered Victoria Falls and helped expose the roots of the slave trade. But he fell short of his goals to find the source of the Nile River and to trace the biblical roots of Judaism and Christianity to Africa. A journal entry in 1856 captures his suffering burning fevers, attacks and threats, and an arm crushed by the jaws of a lion. He said he, quote, felt much turmoil of spirit. Yet that entry also included the final words of the Gospel of Matthew. Be sure of this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Livingstone carried a Bible with him and during one journey read it through four times. Engage with the Bible. Discover its impact on history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.
are back here on Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. We're talking about traditions in the church and what is the authority of uh, leaders in the church to uh, to uh, say that we have to do them. And uh, we're here with our guest today, Professor Tom Egger from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and Pastor Warren Worth from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen of St. Matthew in Bonterre. Our toll-free number is 800-730-2727 and locally in St. Louis, 314-8210-850 and our email address kfuo at kfuo.org if you have any comments or questions on this topic. All right, we're going to pick it up then in Article 28 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, uh, picking up at paragraph 11. The gospel clearly testifies that traditions should not be imposed upon the church to merit the forgiveness of sins, to be services that God approves as righteousness, to burden consciences so that leaving them out is regarded as sin. The adversaries will never be able to show that the bishops have the power to set up such services. Um, and let me, I'll guess I'll include chapter, uh, paragraph 12 now also. Besides, we have declared in the confession, that's the Augsburg Confession, what kind of power the gospel assigns to bishops. Those who are now bishops do not perform the duties of bishops according to the gospel. Indeed, they may be bishops according to canonical polity, which we do not condemn, but we are speaking of a bishop according to the gospel. Now, uh, Pastor Worth, um, the term bishop can mean different things in different historical contexts. In the New Testament, it seems to be used kind of interchangeably with uh, elder or pastor, what we would call pastor. Um, but bishops in this historical context, what does that office entail? Usually it would be a higher ranking clergyman who would have some kind of authority over other pastors in a region. A translocal authority. Exactly. And so um, if you, you're getting to that today, you have bishops who have a diocese or something mm -hmm. like that. And among Lutherans, some some Lutheran groups still call uh, church leaders at that kind of level of church governance bishop. If they're, for example, what we would call a district president today yeah. over the state of Missouri, uh, we, we would say he's our district president, but some other denominations might call that same person a bishop because of the work that he does. Yeah. And, and we do not object to that kind of thing. If you're just saying that bishop with the idea of overseer, which is episkopos yeah. in the Greek, you know, he's an overseer. So instead of just overseeing one congregation, he's overseeing a number of congregations and the shepherds that God has called and placed over those congregations, and that can be a good thing if it's done. For if you've got good bishops. <laughs> exactly, and if they're working for the sake of the gospel, so that to see to it that the doctrine that is taught in all of these areas is according to the Holy Scripture, that the practices of those churches and their church workers is in accord with Holy Scripture. An ecclesiastical supervisor, we use that term. Exactly. So that, that can be meat, right, and salutary if it serves the gospel and helps the church its uh, leaders and its people to stay focused on Christ and to be living their lives according to Scripture. That's a good thing, yeah. and, and we would not object to that at all. By but human it, arrangement. 
And, and we would acknowledge that that's by human arrangement, that it's not divinely arranged, that it must be so, and that the guy who's in this particular town happens to be uh, a tyrant over you by God's We don't command. say that the Bishop of Rome, there could be a Bishop of Rome, right. uh, but we don't say that he has supreme authority over the whole church by divine authority. We could even concede it if he allowed the gospel by human arrangement. Anything to add on that, Professor Eger? Nope. No. Okay, good. Let's go on to uh, paragraphs 13 and uh, 14, perhaps. Paragraph 13. We are pleased with the ancient division of power into A, power of the order, and B, power of jurisdiction. Therefore, the bishop has the power of the order, that is the ministry of the word and sacraments. He also has the power of jurisdiction. This means the authority to excommunicate those guilty of open crimes and again to absolve them if they are converted and seek absolution. But their power is not to be tyrannical without a fixed law, nor is it to be regal above the law. Rather, they have a fixed command and a fixed word of God according to which they should teach and exercise their jurisdiction. Even though they should have some temporal jurisdiction, it does not mean that they are able to set up new services. Spiritual services have nothing to do with temporal jurisdiction. They have the word, the command, and how far they should exercise jurisdiction. If anyone did anything contrary to that word, uh, if anyone, they should exercise jurisdiction. If anyone did anything contrary to that word, they have received from Christ. So, uh, uh, Professor Eger, how do you read this distinction between the power of the order and the power of jurisdiction? Well, both of them are, I, I should say, neither one of them is some kind of a blanket authority. So neither one of these categories, the power of the order, which is the administration of the word and the sacraments, as it explains. Kind or, of a positive power. Right, or the power of jurisdiction, which would be the binding and the loosing keys, excommunicating uh, openly unrepentant sinners, uh, manifestly wicked unrepentant sinners, but receiving back into the into the church, uh, those who then uh, repent of their sins, uh, those powers are specifically given by Christ to his church and to the pastors uh, of the church. He's, they are given, and, it's, and it is an authority. It's an important authority. It's the authorization to preach the word and to administer the sacraments, but it's not simply setting them up as the bosses of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a... It is a it's a little bit like our constitutional government, yeah, I suppose, not, not, not to make a law of, uh, of, of the, the ministry of the gospel, but uh, these are enumerated powers, yeah. right? That, uh, limited. They're limited powers. They are specific, and they have to do with the proclamation of Christ to the world. And so the, these authorities are regulated in what way, Warren? Well, they're regulated by the word. Yeah. And so if you're doing what you're doing according to the word of God... That's exactly how it should be. But if you go beyond that and you think, well, you have to do what I say because I say so. Because I'm the pastor. And I'm the pastor or I'm the bishop and I wear the funny hat. So you have to do what I say or else. And certainly in the Reformation time, the or else included physical violence that would be. Or imprisonment. uh, Right. Punishments of various kinds. All right. Uh, Good. Then let's go on to paragraph 15. And uh, we'll see where we go with this. 15 and uh, 16. Let's read 15 and 16. 
In the confession, that's referring back to the Augsburg Confession, we also have discussed to what extent they may legitimately enact traditions, not as necessary services, but only for the sake of order in the church and for peace. These traditions should not entrap consciences as though to require necessary services. Paul teaches when he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's from Galatians. Uh, The use of such ordinances should be left free so long as offenses are avoided and they are not determined to be necessary services. In the same way, the apostles themselves ordained many things that have been changed with time. Neither, Neither did they hand them down in such a way that they never could be changed. They did not depart from their own writings, in which they greatly labored, uh, should the church be burdened with the opinion that human rights, R-I-T-E-S, are necessary services. Okay, Um, so, Professor Edgar, what is the proper role of traditions? What's the positive value of having them? Well, it speaks here in terms of order in the church and peace. Can you Um, give some examples where certain traditions provide for order and peace in the church well maybe one of the biggest and most obvious is sunday worship sure right that we uh we have designated the first day of the week the day of our lord's resurrection not as a new mandated day uh not as a new sabbath but as the time that we will come together on a weekly basis it it, uh sits well with the created order of things it extols what jesus did by his resurrection and meeting with the church on the first Easter and then the following Sunday as yeah, well. Yeah, and so uh, um, it's tempting, certainly, for pastors uh, to make a law out of Sunday worship. Uh, certainly, we don't want to despise preaching and God's word or despise the sacrament by by uh, neglecting it and absenting ourselves. And so, it's tempting to uh, to make uh, being there on Sunday morning into a new law. But uh, we need to acknowledge that this is nowhere in Scripture commanded by God. Well, to be to be where the Word is, to be where Jesus right. is, that's commanded. By word God. and sacrament that is commanded. But yeah. that the fact that it's done on Sunday morning, right. is not directly commanded, even though it has the weight, the good weight of two thousand years yeah. of history. Yeah, absolutely. Tradition, tradition. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's a good tradition. A good tradition. For order yeah. and peace. Yeah. Yes. All right, and then um, he mentions here uh, the apostles that uh, that they ordained things that have changed with time that we're no longer uh, having to do. Can you think of any examples, Pastor Worth, from the New Testament? Well, I wasn't exactly sure of what he was looking at, unless, for example, women women covering their head, for example, might be one. Because in Corinth in the first century, that community communicated to not to have your head uncovered, communicated a negative message. And in the Augsburg Confession itself, in this article, they use that as an example of if a woman went out with her head uncovered, that would not necessarily be a sin, and you shouldn't accuse somebody of having committed a mortal sin in such a circumstance. But Worth, you and I remember, we're all, you're at least old enough to remember uh, from your childhood when the ladies did wear head coverings to church. Yes, as a regular matter, they would usually But if somebody wear said you have to wear one, then that would be going too far. And I know some sisters in Christ today who still, um, not by legalistic demand, but out of their own piety, 
uh, wear some kind of head covering when they are, are in church. And, and that's a, a, it's meat right and salutary, as we said before, if they're doing this in the, with the right attitude where out of reverence for Christ and a respect for his word, it's a, for them, it's a, a sign of their uh, being under the authority of Christ as well as the authority of their husband and so yeah. forth. But It's it what would, that action would communicate in a particular cultural context. That can change with time. Exactly so. And I think also the Acts 15 uh, church convention where it said, don't, was it, don't... Uh, uh, was Eating it, things strangled and with blood. blood and so right, forth. Right. And in that context, that carried a message where it may not today. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay? So that, I think that's the kind of thing he's referring to there. All right. Uh, paragraph 17. And this, I, this is my highlighted paragraph here. To me, this was the nut of the whole thing in a good way. Uh, this is the simple way of interpreting traditions. They are services that are not necessary, yet for the sake of avoiding offense, we should observe them in the proper place. I think in a very succinct way, he captures the the right balance here, Professor Egger. Yes, and uh, and observing them in the proper place would include in the in the larger context of this article, um, refusing to observe traditions that do compromise the gospel. So in their day, there were a number of church traditions that had been handed down and demanded. That's part of why they're having to have this apology and this discussion. It's why the Reformation happened is they simply could not in good conscience observe certain traditions, but those that were longstanding and and either supported the gospel nicely mm-hmm. or or were indifferent, they were happy to continue to observe uh, for the sake of tradition, and yeah. which is another way of saying for the sake of peace and good order. Now, this is in 1531. Uh, within about 20 years later, there will be some controversies, the adiaphoristic controversies, where things that could have been neutral, neither commanded nor forbidden, when the Roman Empire, uh, Holy Roman Empire, had greater military power, they were forcing this upon the Lutherans. Things that normally could have gone either way, but because they would have communicated a certain message, it became a, a case of confession where we said, no, we're not going to do that, because then it'll look like we're giving in to the false teachings of the Roman Church. Exactly so. And the in the formula of Concord where they address that, they make comparison to the New Testament with a matter of circumcision. So the way Paul handled the matter of circumcision in the New Testament... Timothy and Titus. Yes, the, the classic example, so that uh, if it's not necessary unto salvation, and people don't teach it as being necessary unto salvation, it's fine. Go ahead and circumcise your baby boys if you want to. But if somebody says you must do it or you are not saved, then you dig in your heels and say, no, now it's contrary to the gospel. We cannot give in on this because you've made this uh, something conditional by which if we don't do it, you're not saved. So we won't give in on that. So that's kind of the classic example that was given. So then when the Reformers talk about this. They make comparisons to those things in their own day, which the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire were trying to impose on people by force. Now, this balancing statement, yet for the sake of avoiding offense, we should observe them in the proper place. Is it possible in the church today for churches or pastors to change or omit certain long-standing salutary customs and traditions 
whereby they can give offense. Does that is that still possible today? Either one of you? Well, certainly. Um, uh, I think uh, I think the worship wars of our day. Yes, that's um, what I'm thinking of too. Are uh, are an example of of the church wrestling with this question precisely? Is that is the longstanding order of the church's worship? Um, is that something that can be changed without offense uh, or is, dropped or yeah. Uh, or is it something that is a worthwhile tradition that the church um, is losing something important, uh, not, not something necessary according to the, the term necessary as mm-hmm. it's being used in the, in the apology here, not necessary for salvation, but useful and Salutary and something that points to the gospel. Um, I think of these these two Latin phrases, the essa and the bene essa. Yeah, we're not saying it's of the essa, the essential that we have divine service setting three, which I happen to think is the best representative of the common service in the history of the church um, that we have. Uh, but we're saying it may be of the bene essa, of the well being of the church, even if not absolutely essential. Pastor uh, Worth. Well, in that same regard, I would say, as brothers in, and sisters in, in the church, we ought not do something without taking into consideration what it means for others. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes people come up with what they think is a great idea and rush headlock, long, headlong like a bull in a china shop, changing things, getting rid of things, without considering what that's going to mean for everyone in their own congregation and the surrounding congregations. Because many of us experience this where something happens in a neighboring congregation and then pretty soon people say, well, they do it. Why can't we do it? And it it really can cause uh, problems that way. And one might argue the other way, too, in reintroducing uh, practices that have fallen out of custom in a place, a pastor needs to be patient and do his catechesis to teach the people why this is a good idea. So if your congregation doesn't have people kneel when they receive the Lord's Supper and you're trying to reintroduce that practice, you you can't just rush in and make people feel guilty if they don't want to do it. You need to teach them what's the value of that. Same thing if you wanted to have a crucifix where there was no crucifix before or have some other kind of practice that somebody might consider Catholic, chanting, chanting, chanting the Psalms and this kind of thing. If your church has not done that, you know, you need to teach why it is beneficial, why it's something that is helpful and lead them gently and patiently Right. To adopt such practices rather than acting in a dictatorial fashion sure. and making people, burdening people's consciences. In which, ironically, we're acting like the Roman bishops except for a good thing. Right. So you, you don't want to burden people's consciences and make them feel it's a sin if they are uncomfortable with something like that when they haven't done it before. Well, this leads into a question from one of our listeners, and it is Cheryl in Indianapolis. Uh, welcome to the program, Cheryl. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is, like, uh, congregations have traditions on how often they offer the uh, sacrament of the altar. Mm-hmm. What if uh, you're a person who is, like, getting older and you're wishing that it would be more often? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I asked my pastor about it, and he said, well, first you have to teach the congregation about what worship is. I oh, okay. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. Yeah. But um, the, the way we have it set up now, 
is that it alternates uh, Sundays between the traditional mm-hmm. service and the contemporary service. Yeah. So there are people that just, they don't switch which service they go to, so it ends up being every other Lord's Day. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's a good so, example question of how to regain maybe a salutary tradition that has fallen away through various historical circumstances. Either one of you want to comment on this? I've got some thoughts on this. I've dealt with this in my own parish. Well, I, I think uh, on the one hand, when we're talking about the gift of our Lord's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament, th- that gift is not simply a man-made tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it, it is true that the church has made different decisions about how frequently to offer the Lord's Supper, Um but I think an argument can be made that that uh, that there is clear spiritual gospel value to regular communion and frequent communion, even weekly communion, or or even more frequently. Um, however, uh, it's also true that uh, even this question, the frequency of communion, finally comes under the category of uh, human decisions that we make together in terms of the frequency and the setting in which uh, the sacrament will be offered and that we should not burden consciences with that. Uh, so uh, people should uh, should not be made to feel guilty uh, for communing uh, at a congregation that, that communes uh, less than weekly. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think the longing for more frequent communion is an appropriate Christian longing. Mm-hmm. Pastor Worth. Well, and it comes back to everything else we've been saying on this program through all the weeks. The reason the apology was written was to help people see how the gospel is all about comforting consciences. And whose conscience isn't burdened weekly with the need for the forgiveness of sins? And whose conscience isn't benefited by coming to receive the body and blood of Jesus given and shed for the forgiveness of those sins. Uh, It's such a wonderful thing. And if people can see the benefit, Luther says, they will beg you to have the Lord's Supper more frequently. And it sounds like our sister who called in is one of those people begging her own shepherd to help uh, the congregation come to that decision. Because when you choose not to have the communion every Sunday, you're you're depriving people who would appreciate it. Absolutely. And somebody who longs to receive the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins on a more frequent basis, it would be good if the pastor can help to teach the congregation and lead the congregation to make that decision uh, for the common good. And those who do not feel the need for it every week will not be made to feel guilty if they don't right. take communion every week. Even if they're in church, they may absent, uh, may not receive the supper. But but at the same time, by offering it, then it's there for those who do feel the need and who are uh, catechized and examined yeah. and are able to receive it properly. I'll give you a little case study of my own experience. When I came to St. Matthew's in 2006, they had communion just on first and third Sundays. Um, and so I knew... I think the better practice is to offer communion every Sunday. That's If you read uh, 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 Augsburg Confession 24 and Apology 24, that was the practice in the Lutheran Church. That was the practice across Christendom from the earliest days of of the New Testament, to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday uh, on the day Christ rose and ate with his disciples. So um, I knew that was a good goal to have. 
And But I didn't come in there and say, I'm the pastor, you have to do what I say. In other words, I laid a foundation and taught, dropping, planting seeds along the way and teaching. I even had a long course on this. And uh, so it took four years. But eventually, without a vote and without any opposition, they were ready to go to every Sunday communion. And uh, not that I said, you're going to sin if you, I said, you're not going to sin if we didn't do this. I'm just saying, it's a good gift. Why not? And uh, that's how we went about it. Precisely. Good. Thank you for that question, Cheryl. We've only got a few minutes left. I don't know that we're going to finish. Let me just see what we can do here. I'm just going to read, plow right through the end of the article. So our next guys next week might start up with the Schmall Called Articles. Paragraph 18. Many learned and great people in the church have understood it this way, nor do we see what can be said against this. Clearly the expression, the one who hears you hears me, is not speaking about traditions, but is directed primarily against traditions, what we alluded to earlier with Jesus. Um, It is not a bestowal of unlimited authority, as they call it, but it is a caution against something prescribed. Regarding the special command, that is, the testimony given to the apostles that we believe them with respect to the word of another, not their own. Christ wishes to assure us, as was necessary, that we should know that the word delivered by human beings is powerful, and that no other word, that's divine word, should be sought from heaven. The one who hears you, hears me, cannot be understood of traditions. Christ requires that they teach in such a way that he himself is heard, because he says, The one hears me. Therefore, he wishes his own voice, his own word, to be heard, not human traditions. So a saying that clearly supports us and contains the most important comfort and doctrine is distorted by these stupid men into the most silly matters, the distinctions of food, vestments, and the like. The adversaries also quote Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders. This passage requires obedience to the gospel. It does not establish a dominion for the bishops apart from the gospel. Neither should the bishops enact traditions contrary to the gospel or interpret their traditions contrary to the gospel. When they do this, obedience is prohibited. According to Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We make the same reply to Matthew 23.3, quote, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Because clearly a universal command is not given that we should receive all things, since elsewhere scripture asks us to, quote, obey God rather than men. Therefore they teach wicked things. They should not be heard. These are wicked things. Human traditions are services of God. They are necessary services, and they merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The adversaries object, arguing that public offenses and turmoil have arisen under the appearance of our doctrine. We briefly reply to these. If all the scandals were combined, still the one article about the forgiveness of sins, that for Christ's sake through faith we freely receive the forgiveness of sins, brings so much good it hides all evils. In the beginning this gained for Luther not only our approval, but also that of many who are now fighting against us. Former favor ceases and mortals are forgetful, says Pindar. Yet we neither desire to desert to desert truth necessary for the church, nor can we agree with the adversaries in condemning it. For we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Those who earlier condemned uh, clear truth and are now persecuting it with the greatest cruelty will give an account for the schism that has arisen. Are there no scandals among the adversaries? 
How much evil is there in the sacrilegious profanation of the Mass performed for profit? What a disgrace is celibacy. But let us leave out comparisons. For now, this is our response to the confutation. Now we leave it to the discernment of all the godly whether the adversaries are right in bragging that they have actually, from the scriptures, refuted our confession. We got it in. We're showing here how the Lutherans are stubborn, so stubborn in insisting on the pure gospel and opposing anything that condemns it. That's what the Lutheran confessions are all about. So next week, we're going to start up with the Schmalkald Articles. That'll be next week on Concord Matters.